Arthur, good afternoon. Thanks for joining the Hipstorians with myself, Neil, and Derek. Hi, Arthur. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. You're more than welcome. I think, as I explained just before we came on air, as it were, uh, we're just fascinated by history, Arthur, all sorts of history, uh, all aspects of history. I mean, your story kind of jumped out and, uh, you know, got Derek to, to reach out to you. You've, you've, you've led a bit of, uh, I'd say, an exotic life. Uh, let me see, you, you served um, as a senior British diplomat in, let's see, where do we start? Uh, you know, you've been to Afghanistan, yeah. Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Yemen, mm-hmm. Iraq. You are a fluent Arabic speaker. So, salam, so, salam alaikum. That's me <laughs> <laughs> uh, showing off my yeah. little bit. <laughs> that's about all I have uh, oh, in, well. in the American world. But yeah, look, you know, you're coming at history as it unfolds. Yeah. Is, is basically as, as a man kind of who's been in the trenches as a British diplomat, you know, you're, you're, you're watching history unfold right in front of your eyes. And that's what's drawn us to, to your story. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your background, about your work then as a uh, British diplomat? Is that the right terminology? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I am, um, I was at university in the sort of mid nineties. Uh, in fact, one of, one of the sort of last things, well, in 97, I was just, I just finished my final exams and that was when Tony Blair was elected prime minister in the UK. So that was obviously a big transitional moment in, in British history, mm. uh, recent history. Um, and, and I joined the foreign office straight from there. So we're talking, you know, it feels like a million years ago now, but an, an era of the, the, the Cold War had ended, but 9-11 had not yet happened. Mm. Um, the, the biggest sort of thing on the global agenda was probably the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, which was yeah. undoubtedly a significant event, but not really perhaps on the kind of scale of the things that would soon happen mm. after the 9-11 attacks, the Iraq war, Afghanistan and so on. So it was a it was a sort of brief, um, some people even talk about the happy 90s, you know, this sort of mm. period of, of a slightly kind of innocent uh, phase in in recent global history um yeah so i i joined the foreign office as i say straight from university and and just the the way the sort of cards fell on i i ended up working initially in africa in zimbabwe and nigeria and then after 9-11 happened i volunteered to learn arabic because it felt like a mm. you know a, a priority issue around that time and then that led to probably the next 10 years of my life being sort of slightly dominated by those issues. So I worked in, in Yemen, Iraq and Afghanistan, all sort of in connection with, with those, those issues. So yeah, it was a pretty busy and interesting period in, in, um, in the kind of recent diplomatic history, I think you could say. Absolutely. Would you consider it have been thrown in the deep end or was it, first of all, before I ask you that, why, why the foreign office? Like why, did you, you know, what were you studying in, in, in university that brought you into, and what, yeah. what was the background of the, of the interest? Yeah. In well, I, I actually, I studied history. So, you know, here we all are, shared yeah. passion. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure it's very similar in, in, in Ireland that, you know, you, you can, you do one of those sort of humanities degrees and it, it, you slightly sort of have a range of options in terms of what you might do with your career. Um, I didn't, if I'm very honest, I, you know, I wanted to travel yeah. uh, like lots of young people do. And 
I I had a few ideas, but not very well formed ideas about what, what, where my career might take me. And basically, um, I applied for the Foreign Office, which is quite a lengthy process, not unusually for the government service roles, you know, various tests and interviews and so on. And I didn't really think I would get in just because there's always lots of applicants and I was lucky enough to get a get a position. So it was more a case of um, thinking, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to have this job, I better do it now, you know, rather than it being something I'd planned to do, you know, from, from a young age. Mm. Um, but it was, yeah, the, the opportunity to, to travel the world, really, and, and, and do something interesting while I did it. And that was a huge privilege, of course. Absolutely. So you started off in Africa then, as you said. Yes. Yeah. And, what was the, and, what and was as the... you said, you know, thrown in at the deep end is mm. just right, you know. Um, I, uh, so I went to Zimbabwe when I was probably, I don't know, 23 years old or something. And, mm. um, the, uh, that was when there was the beginnings of what, what you see now in an intensive situation in Zimbabwe with a real kind of sort of autocratic political system. But this was the first time that there was this, uh, political movement against Robert Mugabe, mm. the, the MDC, as it was called movement, Dem- democratic change. And, um, yeah, it, it was, you know, there was, a, there was a general election, which was probably the first time Mugabe had faced a genuine opposition party that had a chance of winning. And, of course, he didn't like that. Mm. Um, so that was a really turbulent phase in that country's history. Was it dangerous to be there? Um, I, think, I think there were times when it, it could have been in that, um, you know, Britain became uh, a, the, the target of... Uh, a lot of sort of of well anger basically from directed by by Mugabe and and of course you know I'm talking to a couple of Irishmen there's, there's a lot of history with colonialism mm. and all of that but equally you know M- Mugabe was really there was Britain by that time you know Zimbabwe had been independent for decades mm. and 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 to, he he kept going on about Britain as a proxy you know what he was really going on about was was white Zimbabweans all of whom had passports they'd, they'd you know, they'd become citizens of that country. Uh, and um, But of course, they, they were often, you know, wealthier. They often had big land, you know, big, big farms and things like that. So, so to, going back to your question, it, the, uh, there was some risk in the sense that Britain was, was sort of objectified, but I, I don't think it was a real risk. I mean, the real risk was borne by ordinary Zimbabweans who were politically, um, you know, not, not aligned with Mugabe and his political movement because you know don't make light of it but it got nasty pretty quickly didn't it i mean you had people disappearing um yeah absolutely uprooted people fleeing it was a very dark time i don't think it's i don't think it's over either arthur is it no 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 it isn't i mean i think you know sadly basically what happened the um because, as I say, it was the first time there was a real threat to that political movement, which, which you know, had dominated the country from independence. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the response was a violent response, basically. And it carried on being violent uh, to the point that uh, the, a lot of politicians, you know, some were disappeared, some obviously left the country, fled to South Africa or came to Europe or whatever, and and the kind of the energy behind it was sort of was sort of crushed really, mm. and um, and and there were also there were some of the 
the so-called white farmers were targeted. Some were murdered. Some, yeah. some again had their land seized. Well, most of them had their land seized, and and many, many of course left the country as well. So yeah, it was a it was a very sad period, and and you know no that nobody really ended up benefiting. Even I mean, a few of Mugabe's cronies obviously got rich. Yeah. But the you know the, the economy of the country collapsed. The, the currency became worthless. You know you could go around with these like bricks of notes just to pay for a, for a cup of coffee or something. It was quite quite bizarre. And you were you were twenty three at the time. Yeah, so it was it was um, baptism of fire, I suppose. Really? And, you know, of course, you, you you learn you learn quickly in those situations. Yeah. I'd know? say. I'd say. <laughs> did you ever get to meet him, Mugabe, or be in his circle? Or well, I I did. I went. I wouldn't say it was a meeting, but I went. I went to the state. Of, of parliament a couple of times and, it, and it's quite an intimate the parliament building there is quite intimate so you end up being quite close to the man um he's physically quite small oh. um a, a very powerful speaker you know he had a definitely had a presence about him mm. um and, and he was you know he was um, he was he was a bit of a monster certainly but he was a very impressive man you know he had a, numerous university degrees you know even while he was imprisoned by the brits he he had studied um taken a degree you know by correspondence or whatever he was clearly a brilliant and angry man basically and and you know with that that sort of played out in historic terms of that, course that should be the name of his biography perhaps a brilliant and angry man <laughs> yeah, you know totally. right there that, yeah. that could give the title of your next book because obviously um you know did you did your book come much later how britain broke the world did that come yes yeah that, that's way after all yeah, your so dip, I, diplomatic work. i um I finished, uh, I, I left Her Majesty's service, or uh, as it was then, yeah. um, in 2014. So a few, uh, nearly eight years ago now. And um, I, I've i done various things as a, you know, private citizen since then. And then I, the book that I published actually came out this year. Yeah. So that's a, a much more recent um, thing. And, and uh, certainly it, it wouldn't have been possible for me to write that, that book. Yeah, no, Arthur, myself and yourself are, are exactly the same vintage. We're both at uh, 1975. So uh, we, we grew up in a world, I think, I mean, aside from the few periodic economic woes that uh, were experienced in our yeah. childhood and the 80s and whatnot, um, we were very insulated from a lot of the yes. major events in world history. And I suppose, you know, we, we would have had a, a, our views coloured by that, certainly. Um, you know, I suppose for you, like us, I mean, what was the Britain of your youth like as you experienced it? Yeah, well, it was it was Thatcher's Britain. Um, so, as, as you know, my, my my recollections there was you know I, I I do just about remember the miners' strike, but I grew up in the south of England, so you know it wasn't a mining area. I certainly don't. It wasn't a sort of visceral memory. I mean, one one thing that did, of course, exist was was you know the IRA and the sort of Irish Republican mm-hmm. issue. Uh, uh, but again, I, it certainly didn't feel like a major sort of aspect of life. It was more something that happened now and then in another place, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, yeah. So I think you you had Thatcher's Britain and and a world in which um, whatever your politics, you never believed the Labour Party would ever win an election because it just didn't. It was something that didn't happen. Um, and then, of course, you know, we went through the, the, the John Major era, the end of the Cold War, and then Tony Blair coming in, and, and that changed somewhat. Um, but I think it was it was a world in which, uh, even though Britain clearly was in a lot of decline, uh, and the 80s, in some respects, were a fairly 
um, you know, troubled period, I mean, maybe not so much as the 70s, there was, Britain clearly had this sense of sort of self, self-regard of, of a, a once great country that still had a big military, still has its seat on the UN Security Council, still has a sort of global, um, global recognition. And of course, it, it's perhaps poignant, you know, we're talking on the day of, of yeah. Her, Her Majesty the Queen's funeral. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you couldn't say, ask for more definition of the end of an era than that. And we are certainly, I think, at the end of that era. And uh, Britain probably hasn't figured out where it's going. You know, what is the next era? I think that's a subject of of considerable debate, but Britain has yet to um, sort of get to the bottom of. We, we didn't know how good we had it. I think we can all testify to uh, how good the 90s were. <laughs> Certainly, oh, yes. uh, yeah, <laughs> nostalgia, huh? A, a, more uh, innocent, sure. a more innocent time. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I suppose I consider the yeah. book as a thoughtful argument. I mean, when, in a sense, you wind back a lot of the, the, the problems to, you know, 2003 and Iraq. I mean, you even go as far back as, as, as the Balkans um, and how this has led, you know, to, I suppose, your thesis on how Britain uh, uh, has broke the world. I mean, I suppose, you know, you mentioned there was a step away from internationalism, uh, this rules-based system via the UN resolution. Um, and, you know, when Britain took the view uh, that if a state was unwilling or unable to protect its people, well, then it was OK to invade in order to enforce, you know, th- those rights. Um, and I think, you know, and, and again, there's a lot around, obviously, with your, your podcast, Doomsday Watch, which is, is fantastic. I, I really do. I, I listen to, to every episode. You. But, you know, of course, this was where Russia was watching. You know, Putin was waiting for his moment. And, and I think yeah. it's probably ignited uh, a nationalist bent in the Russian citizens. Uh, at, at that time and he has uh, profited or used that to, to profit again so that be correct yeah i think that's right so really what i sort of looked at in the book is you've got this moment as you mentioned you know the, the 90s were a great period the cold war was over democracy had won it felt as if the the sort of western capitalist model whether we're talking about ireland or britain or you know america it was just it was going great guns the stock market was shooting up houses were climbing in value everything was great mm. and and certainly that if you were leaving university in the late 90s as i was you weren't too worried about getting a job you know it was about what job shall i pick yeah. not can i get a job mm. so everything was was hunky-dory basically and um and in a way i think that created hubris particularly for a country like britain that of course had this history of having been once a, a global power not anymore um, and Tony Blair, and Blair is somebody I, I still, you know, have time for. I, th- I, I like his sort of, you know, centrist, moderate politics, but I think he made some terrible mistakes on the international space. And I think one of them was this idea that that there was so much sort of um, moral integrity to, to, to his own belief and approach that he could, when the rules didn't work, he could kind of cut the corners. And so you saw that, as you've said there, even with, with the Kosovo campaign. And, and now most people look at the Kosovo campaign and say, well, that was that was the right thing to do. It was in protection of human rights. The Kosovars were being targeted by the Serbians. There were, there were massacres and, and, and there were, you know, um, all kinds of terrible things happening. And I, I don't disagree with that analysis, but I think you have to recognise, as, as you rightly said there, that, you know, others are watching. So if you say, mm. I don't need the UN Security Council to authorise my action, mm. then of course, Russia might say, well, perhaps I don't need it either. Mm. And in 2014, when Putin had invaded Crimea, that's exactly the argument that he made. He yeah. said, 
he specifically cited Kosovo and he cited Iraq. He cited Libya, 2011. And and the, the problem with this is I, I don't want someone to mistake what I'm saying for saying that I think then Putin was right. No, he was wrong too, you know, and he was more wrong, arguably, mm. you know, the way the Russian army behaves in Ukraine, carrying out massacres, war crimes. There's no debate, but 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 we've made it easier for people like that to, to make that argument by our own mm. behaviour, where we've kind of said, well, the rules are for the other people. You know, we're yeah. Britain, we're America. We we're, The rules aren't for us. You know, we're above the rules. And, and that's, we're now kind of reaping that, that um bitter mm. harvest so where did it all go wrong arthur well i think it's it's a gradual process i think you know the thing about kosovo was that ultimately the 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 core objective was achieved and that the serbs were driven off the territory and you know as, as you'll everybody knows an international force came in and stabilized the ground and 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 the human rights uh, of the Kosovars were protected. So that, that sounds good. But mm. what it did, I think it gave, particularly for Blair, but also for, for some of the neocons in America, it gave them this kind of sense of destiny that that they had found a new way to handle, you know, basically sort of undemocratic forces around the world. So then after 9-11, now of course 9-11 was a horrific crime. It was a crime of mass murder. 3,000 people died in New York on that day. So again, we, we don't, to, to, to make these observations is, is not to somehow justify or what you know what those people do. Yeah, you're putting but, it in context. You're just putting yeah, it in exactly. But so after nine eleven, the the view was taken that you know we we the West, but particularly the UK, the US, NATO countries, perhaps we the West have found a way using our powerful military to bring democracy and bring freedom, and effectively it's this kind of you know, some people will call it a liberal interventionism or, or, you know, military interventionism or military humanitarianism. There are, there are different terminologies used. Mm-hmm. And and you had, first off, the invasion of Afghanistan straight after um, 9-11. Now, that was, at, at the outset, was a very limited operation, very small numbers of foreign troops on the ground, mostly kind of special forces, mm. very light footprint. But the real tragedy was the invasion of Iraq, yeah, where, yeah. in a way, the, the, the whole thing was turned on its head. And, and um, the decision was made uh, to invade Iraq, and then kind of they had to find the, the justification. Mm. Um, mm. So, that you know, it, it wasn't enough to say, well, Saddam Hussein is not nice to his people, because, of course, we could make a long list of countries yeah. where the leaders mistreat their population. Mm. Uh, so they came up with this whole argument about WND and how mm. that somehow threatened us yeah. in, in Western Europe. And, and it was a specious argument. Um, and as, as we subsequently learned, in fact, he didn't even have the WND. Mm. Even if it had them, you know, even if it had a few stocks of chemical weapons, yeah. could you really have justified Absolutely. invading Iraq, wiping out not just, you know, the leadership, but most of the institutions, you know, yeah. the army was shut down, ministries were shut down, Absolutely. and the country was was taken right back to a sort of a barely functioning state. And, and is that where you, when you ended up there? In, in yes, the so my, my time in Iraq was not long after the invasion. Wow. And we were we were looking at a country that, as I say, had hardly any functioning institutions. And you had this hugely complex um, sort of imperialist program, basically, driven by the Americans. And, and it was driven, you know, where it perhaps differs from the sort of imperialism of the 19th century was that 
Um, you know, the Americans were not trying to exploit the resource of Iraq. People often say that, oh, yeah. they went for the oil. No, they didn't. They, mm. they, they went with this weird idea that they were going to embed this kind of democratic yeah. nation. Um, but, of course, you, as any country that, that has managed to become a democracy will know, it happens through a gradual process of the people in that country, yeah. you know, experimenting with different systems and constitutions get adopted and discarded and there are civil wars and there are all kinds of stories in, in the history of most countries mm. on that long journey to democracy. And the idea that, that you could have just turned up with a load of consultants and soldiers, which was, that was the plan, um, it just was, you know, it was crazy. And, and I remember... At my, when I was there in Iraq, you would meet people. Often they were they were really sort of charming young Americans who were there. Sort of they were you know there was a guy who was making the Iraqi stock market. And if you think about it now, it just seems a bit hilarious. But at the time, there was this whole idea that if it's a vibrant capitalist economy with stocks being traded in Baghdad, then you know somehow it would be it would be more democratic. Um, well, you know we, we all know how, how that story ends. Um, <laughs> Not very happily, sadly, but I think the particularly the the invasion of Iraq because it was it was such a cataclysmic event, and of course, it it had a huge impact on people all over the world, and and um, you know it it if if you look at for example how Russia reacted again they they were they were sort of terrified of the thought that. Um, you know, perhaps the US might invade them one day. Now, of course, that was never really on the card, but it's just this concept that sort of all the rules were, were you know, were off the table. Anything might happen now in this kind of neocon world. And we'll remember that period of George W. Bush and, and the people around him, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld. They really, they looked at a map of the world and they were kind of rewriting the whole the whole rule book, really. Well, that, that's what, sorry, I know Derek's bursting with questions for you, Arthur, uh, where we jumped on top of each other here. But if they didn't go into Iraq <clears throat> for weapons of mass destruction, which, you know, whether they knew about that at the time or not, perhaps open to some question. If they didn't go into for the oil, which I think is a mm. completely specious argument, I, I don't mm. understand it at all. Why did they go? Yeah, it's, it's so weird, what, isn't like, it? Because... What, 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 where, behind the closed doors where these yeah. heads are meeting, and they, between themselves, let's say, we're in the fly on the wall, they're saying, yeah. you know, Tony's saying to the Bush, like, okay, look, we we know they don't have weapons of mass destruction. You know, we're not interested in the oil. There's nothing else there. <clears throat> and we're not on some mission, excuse me, <clears throat> to make it a democracy. Why go? Is it, I, I well, like, can I forward a little? Yeah, go, give me your, your theory. I think it was just to show off. Like, I think it was a display of power. It was to show. To attach themselves to power. Well, it, was America, it was America's idea. They, they wanted to do it. I, I think it was big boys showing off their yeah. big toys. You know, they had all these yeah. military hardware. Yeah. They wanted to show whoever was watching. You guys were talking earlier about who was watching. Check this out. Don't, don't. We got the Abrams. We got, you know, the attack helicopters. We've got all this cool gadget stuff. We got the US Marines up there. In the, in, it's all really glamorous from a militaristic, militaristic hardware point of view. You know, and also there's the argument that they didn't finish the job properly the first time round, and that they, they the Bushes who were still effectively in power as as a, as a family mm-hmm. wanted to go back because it was unfinished business. That's my take on it. It was nothing more complicated than that. I think there's certainly an element of that, and and again, in back in mm-hmm. the sort of 
19th century imperialist era, yeah. you get those punitive expeditions, yeah. you know, the British army would roll into somewhere, Sudan or a bit of Tibet exactly. and just sort of kill a few hundred people, show them who's boss. I think that was part of it. I, th I, think, it's, I think it's believable that there were a lot of different uh, motivations which, which just coalesced at a, at a particular time. Um, you know, so, some of these people were driven by a genuinely, I mean, quite... In, in my opinion, I'm not a practicing Christian, but sort of misplaced Absolutely. idea of this sort of Christian destiny. Um, and, and you know, after, you know, some people thought there was a crusade, that oh. there was this battle between Islam and Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe that everybody was into that. And, and maybe some people were thinking about oil and, and that they could make money. And I think a lot of these, these different motivations kind of got, got plugged in together um and and you ended up with sort of it's a classic thing of groupthink where everybody has agreed that it's a brilliant idea and 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 that you know no one is saying but hang on you know the emperor's got no clothes on so so that was sort of part of the part of the issue mm. and and, ha and having me there might, might the outcome have been any different if they hadn't sacked the army and made everyone unemployed yeah i think i think i think that yeah so there are two sort of phases to this disaster one is the mm the decision to do it and then mm. and the way you do it and um yeah so that as, as as people will know they sacked the army um literally in the first few days and and it's not just that but i i remember feeling very strongly when i was there mm. that there was never a kind of roadmap um as to what was happening so you they invaded the country they sacked the army they they appointed this sort of governing council, but it was it was transparently it was in the pocket of of the kind of the American sort of governor general, if you like. Um, and I remember I remember having a conversation with an Iraqi who said to me, "The thing is that if I want to trust you guys, as in the coalition, the, the foreigners, um, you've got to tell me what what the deal is. You know, you're here for two years, or mm -hmm. there'll be an election on this date, and and event." stuff did happen eventually but it wasn't laid out clearly from the outset so if you were from the outset inclined to be supportive it wasn't made easy for you um and of course most people weren't inclined to be supportive why should you support these people who showed up and invaded your country and inevitably will have killed some civilians because wars are always horrible and always end up that way yeah. and so i think there was so much about it that was that was badly executed and and then there was just the incompetence um you know the, the the waste the corruption that that you know wars there's so much money sloshes around so sometimes the wrong people will get rich mm. and people see all of that and you very quickly you then create that space the chaotic space and that was where then the sort of al-qaeda in iraq mm. this yeah. guy abu masab al-zakawi he kind of jumped into that space and he started to create a sectarian civil war and basically by the time that took off uh, the Allies had lost control, yeah. and 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 that was when I was there. That was really what was going on. That it was it was it had already become a civil war. We created mm -hmm. the chaos that enabled that civil mm -hmm. war to happen, mm -hmm. but we didn't have the power to stop the civil war. And arguably, you know, you could say it's still running now. I mean, Absolutely. it's right now in Iraq, things are better than they have been for a little while. But it's it's very turbulent. Yeah. It's politically turbulent. It's violent. There's terrorism. There's areas of the country that are, yeah. you know, contested. It, it's, you know, it's a real mess. What was your job like when you were there? What was your, what you, you know, you get up in the morning, what, 
was your job as a diplomat in the middle of this absolute, yeah. it's all falling apart. You must have felt yes. completely out of your depth, Arthur. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, my, my specific job in terms of what, I, what my sort of task was, my, my objectives, I was, um, I was working in a, in, as part of a very big team, obviously, uh, with we were sort of coordinating the various different programs of assistance and training for the new um, security and, and kind of defense type agencies, which eventually would become, you know, Iraq's army and police and, and home affairs and so on um so and and again you know we we were starting from more or less from zero because most of these agencies have been have been got rid of and of course you can say well yes that's right that we got rid of them because Saddam's secret police were terrible people well, you know i'm sure that's mostly true or they certainly did terrible things um but starting from a blank sheet of paper in a country beset by violence and disorder is obviously not a great way to start and and, and um so yeah, and, and so what the job meant, you know, that what, what what it involved was a lot of lot of meetings, a lot of going going around Baghdad and other cities, and and sitting down with people trying to understand what their challenges were and what resources they need and what training and other other stuff that we we could offer them. Um, it was very interesting. I mean, that that was I I don't I I wouldn't believe that I was in much danger in Zimbabwe, but certainly in Iraq's a you know a dangerous place, and, and there was no doubt about that. Um, so it was quite stressful and quite sort of twenty four seven. But of course, if you're if you're a sort of young person, you know, yeah. finding your feet in a, it's also very exciting and interesting. And I and I would never, never sort of deny that. You know, I I it was like any job which is very challenging. It had moments of high reward, yeah, but in, incredibly stressful as well. Did you get caught up in much violence there? I think isn't there a description in your book yeah. of the, the aftermath of a suicide bombing that's right yeah so i was i was in once in a building that was sort of targeted by a, a suicide car bomb and and i was not injured myself or anything but you know that was obviously quite serious and there was there was a constant i mean this was a period when suicide bombings were a more than daily occurrence uh most of the time they were you know they weren't right in front of you but you you'd always hear them go off oh. and if there was a big one the windows would rattle yeah um and then there were, you know, people would fire mortars. So the, a lot of the our offices were in the, inside the so-called green zone, which is like yeah. a secured area of the city, but it's not secured from the air. So if so, if people were firing in mortars or something, you know, you you'd then go to a sort of shelter. Um, so it was in that sense, it was it was a lot. You know, I don't, I wasn't in the army or anything, so I, I, it's a lot to come from or come into when you when you've just had a sort of normal civilian life up to that point. Um, but, you know, very, very kind of visceral experiences that stay with you, you know, for the rest of your life, really. And what were those redeeming features of the, that work there that you mentioned? Well, one was, uh, just as in every country, you meet amazing, mm. wonderful people. And, 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 you know, I haven't managed to keep in touch with that many, partly because the work we were doing, it was not safe for those people to be sort of overtly friendly with people like us but it's one or two connections i've still maintained um and you end up you you just learn a lot about you learn things about a country that you just don't expect so iraq is a really diverse place it's not it's not kind of monocultural at all it has i mean people know about the sunni and shia and you've got the kurdish community but it's got a big indigenous christian community there are other faith groups that people hardly hear about 
um, uh, as uh, there's um, Yazidis and uh, as, uh, Mandians. So these are very sort of obscure religious groups that are completely distinct from the other sort of better known religions. Um, yeah, and, and Iraq, because Iraq's on the frontier of sort of the, the historic Persian world, Iran and, and, and all that kind of influence, and then the Arab world, it's culturally quite, I would argue, argue perhaps more culturally diverse than some other Arab countries, just from my experience anyway. So I found it really fascinating and enriching. Um, and, you know, I've, I've ended up with a, it, it's, you know, it's full of, like many countries, full of incredibly gifted people who have so much to offer. And of course, you, you wish for it that, that those people can give to their country and, and not be constantly beset by this kind of chaos and violence, which sadly has been the experience of the last, well, probably now 40 years. Yeah. Very good. There's a, there's a, there's a part of Britain I'd love to ask you about. And, uh, it's, uh, it's an idea I've always you know, tried to get my head around and go, wow, it's, yeah. it's a little known part, I think, of, of Britain. Um, and it's a financial part. And, you know, it's mm. referred to as the city um, rather colloquially. And when one kind of, you know, thinks of that, you go, ah, oh, it's just a, a name for the stock market. But, you know, yeah. no, it's, it's a state within a state. You know, it's the whole yes. notion of the, there was an agreement when the Normans came. Go, well, yeah, we're going to keep this. And it's got its own mayor, you know, and it, it regulates itself. So it's answering. Yeah. not to the state and then through obviously the virgin islands and all that like so, so britain has, has become essentially a a massive laundromat for people with cash uh, and, yes uh, yeah absolutely yeah and i touch a bit on this in the book yeah. and with certainly you know the way it has sort of come back into the public consciousness is is that the laundromat for the sort of kleptocrats and obviously russia is a, is a key case study but of course it's not unique to russia there are countries all over the world where unfortunately public officials can steal money and then they um you know and, and they can sort of launder it through the british system and as you say it's you've got the city of london and anyone can go there and you can see St paul's cathedral and all the old buildings and the banks and things but it's 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 a concept more than a place isn't it and you've got as you say you've got this sort of self-regulating uh financial district with, with obviously huge influence huge power so many politicians either have worked there or continue to work there continue to have advisory roles and all those kinds of networks of influence the lobbying and all the rest of it but then on top of that these little bits of some people call them the little red dots of what used to be you know a huge british empire is now a few little islands of british virgin islands uh, Isle of Man, Jersey, Cayman, you know, there's a few of these places. And in land area, they're, they're completely insignificant, but they're significant because they are these offshore territories where regulation is, is close to zero, where you can you can have shell companies where no one knows who the directors are, no one knows who owns these companies. And, and they're, you, they're sort of almost the perfect framework for um, laundering money, for taking... Uh, money from one jurisdiction and secretly putting it in another place and and so that that's in this strange way um britain has sort of perfected that system and, and particularly in our relations with russia we ended up having this kind of schizophrenic policy so on the one hand we're in nato we're a big military power we're quite hawkish uh you know we, we certainly we say that we're standing up to russia being very firm with them but on the other hand 
you know, if you want to buy central London property through a shell company in the Virgin Islands, no questions asked, you know, that's fine too. If you want to send your Russian oligarch kids to Eton College, you know, so they can get the finest education, that's fine too. And so we've got this very, um, well, it, it's an incoherent yeah. policy. Um, but ultimately, you know, the people who operate this system, these financiers, lobbyists, advisors, solicitors, and all these people, you know, they are the British ruling class, you know, more more than the old aristocrats, the old blue bloods in the House of Lords. They've kind of moved on and become a bit irrelevant. But the people who really run Britain now are that, you know, the, the upper professional classes, um, particularly around the financial services sector. And so that their power is probably almost limitless. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. and I suppose given the name of uh, your your podcast, uh, the the view of uh, where we might all be headed um, is, isn't particularly <laughs> pretty, is it? Uh, no, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it's yeah. So, so uh, doomsday watch. Obviously, I mean you could you could say well we're, we're keeping a watch in case it comes, and then we're going to steer off in the other direction. I suppose that's the hope. Yeah. Um, I mean it's it's interesting. We 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 came up with the name, and then um, and then we sort of. You know, I suppose it's a bit like sort of a kind of geopolitical horror movie. And they say, you know, people love a bit of horror, don't yeah, they? Yeah. Um, and, but you, you hope the things don't happen too mm. much. You know, there are more things you think about than actual. But oddly, of course, uh, with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, you know, that actually sort of, it has come true. You know, mm. we were, we did an episode on Putin last year right. and we were talking about, you know, how far does he go? What, what does he want? Uh, and Ukraine was in the discussion. I'm not going to pretend we predicted he was going to mm. go that far, but you know now we've seen what he wants, yeah. and um, and you know and the consequences, of course, are tragic, and, and we're all grappling with it, not just in the military sense, but of course, you know, the cost of living, the cost of fuel, the cost of, of all these commodities that have now shot up thanks to that tragic t- tragic choice that he made. Yeah. You know, through, through your work, Arthur, professionally, you know, being around the world on a professional basis, so, so all these interesting places and what's your own personal gut feeling i mean you know obviously in in britain the same as here and i think across europe it's what's making the headlines i'm a journalist day to day it's the the rising fuel crisis Mm -hmm. and which some attribute to a certain degree the the war in ukraine but not just because of that you know there's all other factors going on but they're like you know the news is by its very nature as you know yourself negative and some people yes. are starting to spiral into, you know, these fits of almost, you know, bleak outlooks um, because of all these different factors that are going on. But you yourself, when you go to bed at night, what, what keeps you up at night, if anything? Is it as bad or? Yeah, I think I think I think I mean, if we look at both the COVID story and, and the Ukraine story, I mean, you can you can take a sort of positive line on those in this i mean covid you know there was this once in a century yeah. novel pandemic well within within a year you know yeah. we had vaccines for them and yeah. and of course there were people some people didn't get vaccinated but not just that but we found ways that m- most people could work productively and and you know change change our um pattern of living and so on um and i think again with ukraine it, it's certainly, you know, the, the, the coming winter is going to be tough, I'm sure. In Ireland, it's going to be tough in this country and, and across Europe. But actually, um, I don't think it's going to do what Putin wants. Well, Putin thought that it would be so tough that people would basically fold, you know, probably in sort of 
January or something, I say, you know, we're done, we can't do this. But actually, if you look at all the new plans and projects that have been brought in, particularly for countries like Germany, I mean, obviously, those of us in the far west of Europe, as we all are, we actually have an advantage. We can get energy from Norway, from across the Atlantic and so on. But for those in places like Germany and Poland, they do need other sources. Mm. But it looks as though they may have figured it out in time. You know, the, the, the huge storage capacity, the new pipelines coming up. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually sort of, I'm not going to say I'm optimistic because that feels sort of almost in bad taste, but I think it's possible that we can, we can sort ourselves out. Um, you know, and actually, if you look at what the Ukrainian military have achieved in the last couple of weeks, yeah, remarkable, extraordinary you know, stuff. Yeah. yeah. It really so it, it, it's quite possible that we'll, we'll end up sort of, in, in a better place than we thought and the kind of natural resilience of well partly people you know i think it is true that sort of democracies have a natural resilience to them um that that it that it will shine through but it, it does need you know you need you need good good leaders as well and we, we've been slightly um slightly thin on the ground here in the uk with with those yeah, in recent years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely and we need people to keep watching like your yeah. good self Arthur. you know this yeah. is this is why people podcasts have, because you know yeah. people of all sorts of for all sorts of reasons uh unfortunately for people in my line of work have veered off traditional media going to podcasts yeah. whatnot because you know we have the freedom and the openness and the democratic yeah. abilities to, to speak about these issues on which note i mean yeah. Wow, we could speak to you uh, all, all, evening. All, all evening. All evening. I know Derek is a so, big fan. Yeah. I'm more recent to your work, but I mean, uh, you know, your story. I, I, I really wanted to get more into your background of your travels, you know, as a fellow traveler around the world. I'd be fascinated by yeah. that. But perhaps Maybe we can we'll come, again. We yeah. come back to you in another yeah. episode. If, the, well, if that would be okay. You know, I'm, you know where to find me now. Yeah. <laughs> we want to just thank you very yeah. much thank uh, you. for your time, Eric, this evening thank you. on Historians. And we'll be sharing it on social media and we'll let you know what it goes. So. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Take care, Arthur. Bye-bye. It's been great. Thanks, guys. Cheers. You're welcome.